This week on Thinking Biblically, I'm going to be sharing a message entitled, An Epiphany of Evil. Welcome to the first Thinking Biblically podcast of 2023. A very happy new year to all of you. Though I guess you might be watching or listening to this much later, but that's okay too. I hope uh, you are doing well, whoever and wherever you are. Uh, Before we get into this week's topic, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe, to share, to review, um, and so on. It really helps. And thank you to all of you who have supported my podcast the past year. Um, it's people like you that uh, help me do this by your encouraging words and by your financial support. Uh, if you want to help financially support this podcast, you can do so by visiting alangilman.ca slash support. The link will be in the description below. Well, this week is uh, in many churches is an observance called Epiphany, and it's seen as part of the, the wider Christmas season. You know, the Christmas season commemorates a uh, most extraordinary chain of events, but it's also connected to all sorts of sentimentality. Not for everyone, of course. A lot of people find this time of year very lonely. It might trigger some things from the past, and may uh, the Lord help you with that if that is the case. Um as we look at at this commemoration called Epiphany and the biblical story that is behind it, uh, we're going to see another kind of triggering, how uh, evil is unleashed in the midst of such a wonderful event. This Christmas season for a lot of people is very sent- sentimental. Uh, it, it's not that for myself, having grown up in a in a Jewish household where we did not observe Christmas, and then later on becoming a believer, having lots of friends uh, who who love the Lord, who come from uh, Christian backgrounds, I've seen and, and also been in various congregations where the the trappings and the sentimentality of of the season is so much a part of it, and that's not necessarily bad, especially if the 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 things that we associate with the Christmas season helps to point to the actual events. Now, I'm not saying that every single thing needs to. You, know, you might love eggnog. I have members of my family that love it. I don't even think I've tasted yet. You could you know, now I'm going to get all these wonderful eggnog recipes. Isn't it late? Because never mind. I don't know. Are people still drinking eggnog now? But let's move on from egg- eggnog. We're actually going to talk about evil. Some people think eggnog's evil. I'm still talking about eggnog. Let's move on. Uh, so the trappings, the sentimentality—it's it, all those are, are are good if they are good in in of themselves. Um, but it seems to me, especially coming from the outside in into these observances and celebrations and so on, the sentimentality of something like Christmas and the days following can obscure the actual meaning of the events that then led to some of these other observances. Um, And so it's, I I, I like to challenge people to do the same thing that we've done with our own, uh, our own Jewish background. I mentioned this in my previous um, podcast where I talked about Hanukkah, where we seek to put everything we do, everything we do through what I call a biblical filter and that do the things that, 
God's really calling us to him. And if there's things in our traditions that are not biblical, they don't have to be directly derived from the Bible, but are they rooted in godliness? And if they're not, we probably should put them aside. And some things are neither here nor there. And, and, and with prayer, we can discern what things in our culture, what things in our traditions are, are good to keep. And so it's the same thing with this celebration of, of or observance of this thing called Epiphany, which I'm going to explain more in a minute. Um, but, you know, even, even the, the, the Christmas story itself, you know, the birth of Jesus, the, the arrival of God in human form. Now, I know for a lot of my Jewish compatriots, that's a very difficult notion. And if that concerns you, you should email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org and let's talk about it. And maybe I'll dedicate a, a podcast to that. Uh, but so the birth of Jesus, the uh, the arrival of God in human form as a, in, in the Christmas story, it's, it's as if what we're looking at is a, a quiet, glowing baby emanating serenity to the world. Is, is that really what the story of, of Christmas, and even calling it Christmas, that's an interesting thing in and of itself, but let's move on. Uh, but this idea of this of this glowing baby, maybe you often seen that in, in a Christmas card, when actually the coming of God as a man in the form of a little baby is actually declaration of war, a declaration of war on evil. And it's the greatest subversive act in history as part of God's quest to restore his creation and to rescue human beings from death and its effects. Like Jesus is like a God grenade and, and, and done in such a, of a, of a, invasive, subversive way to bring the greatest change the world has ever known. His, his birth begins a chain of unexpected events undermining every earthly power that insists on playing God. And we're going to see how the powers, the earthly powers of that day reacted to hearing about his birth. And so many, many churches this coming Sunday, March the 8th, uh, will observe Epiphany. Epiphany means manifestation or appearance. And Epiphany marks the visit of the Magi, often called the wise men, uh, to pay hom- when they come to pay homage to the child Yeshua, Jesus. I don't know if I need to explain that contrary to many typical manger scenes, the Magi didn't arrive uh, at right at the time of his birth or later that evening. For, you know, cue in the shepherds, cue in the Magi, it really wasn't like that, but they they came sometime afterwards, and there's hints of that in the passage that I'm going to read in a moment uh, from Matthew chapter 2 uh, that are clearly uh, show us that it happened after. It might have been soon after. It might have been as long as two years afterwards, um, and I hope that doesn't upset your sense of, of, of the image. There's there's a lot about that scene that we we don't really picture properly, but I don't want to get distracted by that. I want to keep to this story. So I want to look, first of all, at the Magi. Who are the Magi? Uh, There's lots of tradition that has gotten attached to these mysterious visitors, but let's start by looking at their appearance in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus, or Yeshua, was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men... So this translation, the English Standard Version, uses wise men 
from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, this is from Micah, uh, it's chapter 5, verse 1 in the Hebrew, verse 2 in um, in the English. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of rejoicing and joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, as I, I said, there's lots of tra- tradition that's, that's attached to these mysterious visitors. Uh, I want to read again verses 1 and 2 of, of Matthew 2. Now, after Yeshua, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Uh, in tradition, instead of the simple plural magi, um, eventually it's assumed that there are three of them, and that's taken most probably from the three gifts they gave, but of course the three gifts doesn't mean there were only three of them. There might have been two, but that's something we probably will never know. Later on, they became kings, you know, the Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient, Orient, how far east did they come from? Uh, we three kings of Orient are. They became kings. I hope they appreciated being promoted to king, uh, to royalty. Uh, they're just magi, which I'll explain in a moment what that is. And they eventually became kings with names. They got names. don't know they're the right names. I don't know where the names came from. Maybe you know. Uh, maybe Mr. Google or Mr. Wikipedia knows, uh, but um, nobody knows as far as I know. So who were they? Um, so translations like the English Standard Version uh, translate the Greek word magoi, magoi, the singular is mag, it's really magoi, and the singular is magos, and translates it as wise men, um, not really clear as to why they do that. They may have been learned, but learned doesn't necessarily mean wise. Biblical speaking anyway, wisdom is a skill that is able to take knowledge and apply it effectively in life. Now, they did a wise thing. There's something they may, going to Herod may not have been so wise. Don't know. We don't know if it could have been done some other way. We know the story as it has, as it happened. Um, but you know, there's this, this little cute thing that, that's said at, at this time of year, you might get a card that says, wise men still seek him. And sure, but, that's not really who they were. So who were they? Magi, which is interesting, it's where in English we get the words magic and magician. They may not have been magicians, but 
it's likely they were sorcerers of some kind. Um, they, likely they were astrologers, not astronomers, astrologers, people who read the stars to find meaning. And of course, in this case, whatever meaning they were they discerned was setting them on a, a correct course. But that could have been God rather than their own learnedness that, that brought them to the land of Israel at this time. Uh, it's often assumed that these magi, they're actually magi from various places, but it's often assumed that they were from Persia, which is possible. Persia is east of Israel. Uh, there were magi in Persia, and many in Persia, when I say many, I don't know how many, but people in Persia may have been aware of the great coming Jewish king. And, and that would be due to the presence of Jewish people in that area, beginning with the Babylonian exile hundreds of years before. Eventually, the Persians took over and they had their empire. The story of, of the coming of Yeshua happens during the, the next great empire. Well, two empires later, I guess. There's the, the whole Greek thing. And then there's Rome. Um, but at that time, there were still a lot of Jewish people living in the area. But knowledge of Jewish things and biblical things could go back to the Babylonian exile. We have Daniel, who received revelation from God that he documented, and he was right in the both in the Babylonian and Persian courts. And he prophesied in Daniel 9 uh, about the coming of the Messiah. And if you look at it carefully, it would be around this time. And that's why in, in, in the Jewish world, there was a lot of messianic expectation at this time. And it's possible that the Persians had, were clued in, especially the more learned ones, the more interested ones would be clued in that it may have been around the time when there would emerge in the land of Israel, this great Jewish king that would have worldwide effect, worldwide positive effect. Uh, and so then along with that knowledge and their examination of the stars, that led them to Jerusalem at this time. Now there's another compelling theory as to the origins of these magi. Some think that they were actually not from Persia, but from the much closer Nabataean kingdom, the Nabataean kingdom. The Nabataeans were descended from Abraham's son Ishmael, and they eventually established a kingdom right to the east and to the south of Israel and included the Arabian Peninsula. They're actually part of the original Arabs. And you may have heard of their capital, the incredible rock city of Petra in modern Jordan, which I haven't been there. I've seen pictures. It's, an, it's, it's really, really something. So Petra was the capital of the Nabataean kingdom, and there was it was quite a king, lasted for a, a couple of centuries, uh, and uh, it was very rich. And getting hold of these, these precious gifts of, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh would make sense coming from that area. Also, uh, another major clue that most of us would tend to miss is the note that they came from the east. Now, of course, Persia is east of Jerusalem, but when people would travel from Persia, Babylon, to the land of Israel, they would head up north 
because you couldn't travel straight through the mountains and the desert to get to Israel. So they, they took a much better route through what was called the Fertile Crescent. And so they would go up to Mesopotamia and then down through modern-day Syria into the land of Israel. And so when the Bible speaks of those peoples coming to the land of Israel, it would talk about people coming from the north. Not that they originated from the north, but they were coming down from the north. Directly east would be modern Jordan, ancient Edom, and the Nabataean kingdom. So it's possible that this is, and there's no reason why not. Why could they have not come from a place closer and they did have access to these gifts? Um, there is a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60 that also might be a clue with regard to the Nabataeans. Isaiah 60 is this wonderful chapter. It's the one that begins, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 60. A multitude of camels shall cover you. This is 600 years before this time. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nebaioth, that's a possible reference to the Nabataeans, shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. I just thought of now this, the beauty of beautifying God's house, and all around this time might be connected to Herod. So King Herod was, surprise, a Nabataean himself, which could be why they went directly to him. You know, we might think, oh, well, he's the big cheese, right? So you go, you go to him, but not everybody could necessarily get to Herod the Great, as he was called. If you're watching this, note the air quotes, Herod the Great. Um, maybe they had some connection to him, and that would give them an entrance uh, to, to accessing him. So it's possible. There's so much that's not said. Uh, I don't, I, I've, I'm, I've been having less of an issue these days with attempts to try to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. One, one of the reasons for that is the original readers or hearers of these stories would be very familiar with the context. And so learning the history, learning the culture, understanding the language better, like this from the East, we naturally would think from the East, draw a straight line, that they tell us it's Persia, it's Persia not realizing that very likely the people of the day would think of people from the east not coming from Persia. That would be from the north, as I, as I explained. So getting to know as best we can the context really, really helps. Um, but then we can go overboard um, and, and add all sorts of extra embellishments. And so back again, as I was saying earlier, whether it's traditions and, and other things, but also with our ideas, you know, this podcast is called Thinking Biblically. We want to think biblically in order to live biblically. And so when we, we look at Scripture and we bring our, our preconceived ideas, our assumptions, things that we've been told before, we should try to take all that back to God's Word and see if it really holds up. And so let, let's continue on. So regardless of who they actually were, 
they came with wonderful news of a brand new king. And of course, in, in, in the Jewish mind, among many people, they were waiting for King Messiah to come and to, re, to re, release them from Roman oppression and establish God's kingdom on earth forever. That's what they were expecting. So the, the Magi, they go right to the person in power. And uh, maybe, as I said, it was due to some connection with him. But now let's look at who was Herod. So as I said, Herod, also called Herod the Great, we could describe him as a career politician. It means a lot to, to, to means a lot more to me now, having lived in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, for uh, over 20 years. Uh, there's a certain kind of culture in this city that you don't experience in uh, other cities in Canada. Imagine you wouldn't experience in other uh, other cities in the world. Government is the largest employer in this um, metropolitan area of over a million people. And it has an effect on on the culture of our town. And so uh, there are people who are career politicians. That's not necessarily bad. Let's not get off on a, on a tangent on this one, but that's what Herod was. Uh, he was in the whole political game uh, from early on in his life. Um, as I mentioned, he was a Nabataean, which would mean he was an Arab of Arab descent. And there was a, a part of the Nabataean people who converted to Judaism. And that's somewhat connected to the Hanukkah story, uh, things that happened after that. We won't get into that. Um, and so Herod was this, was would see himself as Jewish, but religiously we would call him a syncretist. Herod was a syncretist. Now syncretism is when people attempt to blend two or more religions or spiritualities. And that's something that plagued ancient Israel um, almost from the beginning. Uh, they would sometimes think of the uh, the pagan god, the false god, as, this, as the same god who brought them out of Egypt. They, they connected the true invisible god to idols. So sometimes they would follow other other gods completely, and other times they would try to integrate the worship and customs of other gods with the true God. And when you do that, that's called syncretism. And that's actually something that believers and supposed believers have done you know, all the centuries through. And, and one of the things about being a syncretist is very often we don't know we're doing it because the... Uh, it's very easy to absorb the effects of the cultures in which we live and we adopt the customs of the people around us. If we, if we love the Lord, we end up trying to combine the, the worldly customs with the, with the biblical ones and we often don't know we are doing it. Herod, on the other hand, knew exactly what he was doing. As he tried to sufficiently appease Jewish sentiments on one hand, while also honoring Roman pagan sensitivities on the other. Herod had no issues in, in pursuing his goals through marriage, divorcing, and even executing wives and other family members to suit his political interests. He was eventually appointed king of Judea by the Romans. This made him king of the Jews, 
king of Judea, but that was called he was a client king. So he was king, but not not completely so. He was still under the control of the major empire of that day. And so he was ultimately accountable to the Roman Empire. Now Herod was renowned. This is partly where he gets his great title from. He was renowned for his great building projects, including several vast, seemingly impenetrable fortresses, some of you, some of which we can still see today in the land of Israel, including Masada, which most of you, I'm sure, have heard of. And they were all designed to protect him from insurrection. He built the extraordinary port city of Caesarea. He did so to honor the Roman emperor. He and at the same time, he expanded the Jewish temple and turned it into a wonder. One of the things he did is he greatly expanded the, the plaza that surrounds the temple. And he had to, to do that, he had to build up the, the, the terrain in order to do that. Um, and so when you see, or if you've been to uh, Jerusalem, and you go to what used to be called the Wailing Wall, it's ever since uh, Jewish Jerusalem was... Uh, recaptured by uh, Israel in this in Six-Day War in 1967. We don't call it the Wailing Wall anymore. It's called the Western Wall. Well, the Western Wall is actually a retaining wall that's holding up the plaza that Herod had built up. So uh, Herod managed his kingdom of Judea ruthlessly, being he was outwardly successful in many ways, but he did so at the expense of others, not to mention any sense of right and wrong. So it's pretty clear that Herod was the typical outwardly powerful, but very insecure leader. And then guess who shows up? And to whom do they go? And what's the question they ask him? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, did they really not understand how Herod would react? Maybe that's an argument for them coming from way further away. Uh, but they were excited. They were interested. They didn't know. Even, even learned people can be naive. We don't know. We, we just know, again, we know what happened. They come asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So what does Herod do? Interestingly, the first thing he does is he checks out that, their claim by going to Scripture. And he gets Jewish religious learned men to search the Scriptures to see where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they discover, of course, from the prophet Micah that it was to be Bethlehem. So there's, Herod has this interesting respect of the scriptures. So he's a, was he a believer, a non-believer? What was he? He respects, so he respected the Magi enough. He respected the scriptures enough. But then what did he do with that information? He ends up ordering the killing. You know, he, 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 deceives the Magi into trying to help him find the child so that he can kill him. When that doesn't work and, and they're guided by God to not go home via Jerusalem after, and when Herod learns of that, he, he orders the slaughtering of all the babies up to two years of age. You know, 
get enough of them killed just to make sure the right baby is slaughtered. You know, one, one of the things, before I, I get more on this, there's one thing I wanted to, to mention that I, that I think I skipped. I know I skipped it. And it's the, the, the Magi's ability to sort of kind of get to the right place. Like some might think that their astrology really paid off because it got them to where they wanted to go. But actually, it didn't. It only got them to the general location. Once they got to the capital of Judea, Jerusalem, they didn't know where to go. It took a search of the scriptures to dis discover the right place. And so I think that reminds us how our endeavors, our more natural studies, our research, human intelligence, human wisdom can only take us so far, no matter how good we are at, at trying to understand life and, and, and other things, we still need the scriptures to get us to the particulars, just like the Magi needed it. So on one hand, the story ends okay, because despite Herod's attempt to kill the one born king of the Jews, the Messiah, God rescues him by directing Mary and Joseph to, to, to go to Egypt for a time. So that's good, but it's certainly not a good story for the babies and the families who were slaughtered because of Herod's evil, insecure, ultra-controlling reaction to the otherwise good news that the Messiah had finally come. So that's pretty terrible. But I, I want to leave you with a, with a couple of thoughts about this. I would rather live in a world that when good solutions to difficult problems come, that the problems would simply be solved with no pushback, no other difficulties. I don't know if you've ever been involved in a home renovation. And one of the reasons why we don't want to do home renovations is because you have no idea what's under the floorboards, what's behind the wall. Are we going to find out things about the foundation? And interestingly, those are real problems that are hidden behind uh, the, the veneers that we set up. And, you know, often we could be in a situation like a home, a, a possible home renovation or something in our relationships, something in our communities. We know something's not right. But are we willing to start to dig? Are we willing to start to address what the problems are? Are we willing to get to the source of things? And often we're too afraid because we know that once we start to truly investigate these situations, we're going to be confronted with what appears to be a far worse problem than what we've been enduring. But it's like ignoring a possible cancer uh, diagnosis. You know, I've heard stories over the COVID time where people haven't been getting their checkups and people haven't been following up on some more minor things that now they're discovering cancers 
that are 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 worse in a worse condition than if it would have been addressed earlier. This is a normal thing of life that when we begin to solve problems, often things get worse before they get better. And I don't like that, but I've had to accept that I can't have what I like, that when the good comes, very often there is a great pushback of evil. So what are we going to do about that? Are we going to keep our mouths shut? Are we going to avoid? Are we going to stuff problems? Are we going to run away? Are we just going to make the best of the situation? Or are we going to address those things that need to be addressed and then look to God to help us with the difficulties, often the greater, often the greater difficulties that might come our way? So on one hand, there's a part of me that thinks it would have been better if the Magi didn't come, especially for those babies and their families. And and maybe you're thinking that, but you know, we live in a day where babies are being slaughtered for much lesser reasons than what Herod was concerned about. He was concerned about a messianic takeover and losing everything, everything. Maybe you think that a, a baby, whether you're anticipating a baby or it's happened before, you thought maybe the coming of this baby would mean your life is over. And I just talked about triggering early on, and I really really feel for people who have, have suffered because of the loss of a child, because of abortion, decisions that were made that maybe now you regret or experiences that were not in your control that have been very painful there is help and there's healing in god it's there's it's never too late to whatever it is in fact and going back to this not wanting to address certain situations because at least in the short term it's going to make matters worse we could bring that to God. Well, in this in this story, this horrible thing happened, and this is what happens. When the good comes, evil doesn't take it lying down, and it greatly pushes back. So I don't like that, but I need to learn to deal with that. I need to learn to deal with that reality in God's way. And I encourage you all to do the same. Don't resist doing the good because it might get messy and it might get worse before it gets better. Seek God and do whatever it is He's calling you to do. Think of all the things that should have been addressed or the things that can be addressed and can get better if we're willing to go through the suffering, the pain of working through those difficulties, whatever they may be. I don't think most of them would be as dramatic as this story. There's something else going on here. When we hear horrific stories like the slaughtering of these babies, many of us start to ask, how could a good God allow such a thing to happen? And here is something right in the center of his rescue plan of creation. And this horrible thing happens. How could God let this happen? After all, didn't he warn Yeshua's 
parents to, 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 to escape with him? Why didn't he warn everybody else? It's a good question. It's a difficult question. That we ask such questions, I don't think that's a problem. But what's the answer? And are we willing to hear the answer? And I'm not claiming I'm going to give you the whole answer. This is a very difficult question. But I think there is an answer. And that answer is, God has endowed human beings with a great sense of responsibility. We have been given a role to play in the creation. Going all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, how could God let that happen? It didn't take too long before the whole thing seemed to go off the rails and brought in all sorts of trouble into the human experience and infected the whole planet. How could God let that happen? Well, because He has been working to train godly, responsible human beings. And that plan is so important it was necessary to allow human beings to have sufficient freedom to make their own decisions. Now, I believe that God is ultimately in control, but within that sense of control, His sovereignty, as it's called, He's given us this, this call, mandate, responsibility to be godly human beings that serve God's purposes, and along with that, the freedom to do our own thing in our own way. Thank God we so often don't get away with it. And there's so many ways that we don't get away with it. But there's this, but it does seem very often that evil seems to be having its way. And then we wonder, where is God? But that's the wrong question. Where are people? And especially, where are the people of goodwill? When I did my Hanukkah presentation, and you could check that out, I made the comment that things go really bad when the people who know better begin to compromise, begin to assimilate, become syncretists. You don't need that many godly people to make a good difference in the world. But when those few people are not rising up and doing the things that God is calling us to do, that's when things really go bad. And we could think of a story like Herod and the babies, and we can be mad at God and, and all the rest. And it is troubling. It's a horrible story. Instead of what are we going to think about it, what are we going to do about it? There are babies to save today. There's issues to address today. And maybe you're not the one to do the good that's necessary to address some of those issues, but maybe you are. So let's ask him. And, and let me go back to what I was saying earlier. If we have failed in this area Thanks be to God that there's always restoration and forgiveness available to us. If we have been going in the wrong direction, if we've been too afraid to address certain issues, if we were the ones that actually did wrong because of what Yeshua has done for us, 
there is freedom and forgiveness in God. We can be restored to what He wants us to do. Now, don't just turn around and do the thing that maybe 15 years ago you thought you should do. The essence of repentance is turning from our own way and turning back to God's way. So let's turn to Him and see what it is that He wants us to do in our day. And may He give us the courage to do the, the scary things and the hard things, whatever they may be. Evil will be exposed when God's people rise up and do good. That may not be pleasant, but in the long run, it is for the best. So what do you think? Please let me know. Send your comments and your questions to comments at thinkingbiblically.org. You can leave comments in the comments section below. Again, please subscribe and share and, and get these messages out to those people who need to hear them. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically.